Awesome. How many of you enjoyed being there last weekend? Yeah? It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? A lot of what we saw there was the festival, but that doesn't even touch the sides of how amazing that service was last Sunday. And can I just be bold enough to say that if you're the family that normally goes away at Easter, can I ask you to rethink that for next year? Can I be a bit cheeky and ask that of you? Because if I'm honest with you, there's such an amazing uh, privilege of being able to come together as a church family over Easter weekend when our community is asking, what is this Jesus all about? What is it that Easter is actually about? It was such a wonderful time to come together as family. And, you know, I feel a little bit like we're watching home movies when we see those clips, don't you? Seeing the familiar faces up there. And uh, and I just want to say thanks to Luke and the team for putting that together because they're always there just capturing these moments so we don't forget what it is that God has done and what he's doing in us. So there you go. That's my little Easter plug. Take it with you. I leave it with you. I won't mention it again, but I hope you're there next year. Now, uh, my name's Lauren, for those of you I haven't met before, and uh, I get the privilege here at church of, uh, of overseeing what we call our global impact. It's uh, traditionally been called um, probably our overseas missions, um, and it's been such an amazing thing for me to be part of. I started this probably in the middle of last year. And uh, some of the things that we do look a lot like yesterday morning. Now, can I have a show of hands? Who was at our global 6K run yesterday morning? Oh, oh, about the same as last, last service. So there's a lot of you that weren't. So let me show you another little home movie, if you don't mind. And uh, let's see what took place yesterday down at Mullaloo. Have a look at the screens. Awesome. So if you weren't there and didn't quite kind of grasp what took place, our young adults hosted an event for us yesterday morning called the World Vision Global 6K. And uh, the, the premise of these six kilometres is that that's the average distance a child will walk to gather water in a developing nation where they don't have access to clean water. So the idea is that we register for this event and through our registration fees we are raised money, but also some people raised more on top of that. And uh, our young adults have, have kind of formed a partnership with World Vision through, uh, through World Vision I should say, with East Timor, Timor-Leste. And, uh, and so the money we raised yesterday will go directly to Timor-Leste and, uh, and providing some of the villages there uh, with clean, safe water um, so their children don't have to walk that far. You know, this morning we got up and we turned our tap on, we uh, brushed our teeth, we made a cup of tea and we didn't even give a second thought to where that water came from. But imagine if you'd already walked 6Ks just to get your water. It was such a fun and worthwhile thing to do and um, um, we were hoping to host that annually so look out for that next year. And uh, we had young adults there, we had families there, we had all sorts of ages represented as we uh, got together. Not everyone ran, some of us walked and that was okay. You know, it was such a great fun atmosphere so I hope you can be a part of that next year. 
But um, this morning, as I get to share with you, my heart is to really share some of the vision behind our global impact, some of what we would like to see formed and shaped through us this year as we look at this area. You know, traditionally, as I say, we, we've thought about this in terms of, say, um, our overseas missions. And uh, traditionally, it's been a lot about us sending missionaries overseas, people from within us who have felt called to different cultures and have felt called to different um, spaces and have gone out and we've sent them out. We've perhaps supported them financially, prayed for them, um, other things like that. You know, it's also looked a lot like sending teams overseas to, uh, to fix problems, to build houses or to do all sorts of things that we seem, uh, that deem necessary for us as we look at cultures uh, that are developing and that are different than ours. But, you know, experience, time and observation is saying that perhaps there's a different way of engaging with our global impact, a different way of engaging with our brothers and sisters of different cultures, of different nationalities, of different religions. You know, as we recognise the plight of millions of men, women and children who are still enslaved around the world, we have to ask, what is our response to this going to be? You know, as we see millions of families displaced, especially at the moment from their homelands, wandering as refugees, the church has to ask itself, what part can we play to ease this suffering? You know, Jesus stood up in the synagogue very early in his ministry and said these words to those that were listening. He could have chosen a number of things to say, and yet these are the words from Isaiah that he chose to share. We have them recorded in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And now there's no doubt that as you read the Old and the New Testament, that God cares greatly for the poor and for the oppressed, that mercy and justice echo through the pages of our gospel, of the scriptures, that God has been and clearly is still at work in the lives of the people we see living in the margins of our globe, in those dark spaces that we prefer not to look at. You know, there's no doubt to me also that as we sit here in a relatively peaceful, well-resourced nation and church, that we have a responsibility to both those within our local context and those beyond it in their time of need. You know, God is already at work around the globe. The question is, how are we going to partner with him in his kingdom work to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, to recover the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the Lord's favour? You know, this morning as we begin to unpack what that might look like for us here at True North in the northern suburbs of Perth, I want to open up the scripture, the Gospels, to a, a passage in John where Jesus turns the water into wine. And we're going to unpack this a little bit as we are, begin to see and uh, begin to ask God how he would want to shape this space. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter 2. We're going to begin in the first verse. And it reads, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now this is a fascinating story of Jesus turning this water into wine. But I think some of the challenge we face in really understanding this passage is that our understanding of a wedding ceremony, if you like, is really quite different and very removed from the experience that would have been taking place back in Galilee back then. You know, we, a wedding in our culture in our day often maybe might last an afternoon or an evening. It's, it's one sit-down meal. It's probably just over, you know, not even a whole day really. But back in these times, these ceremonies would have taken place over seven days. You know, the idea of ceremony is probably not even the right word. The, the better word to describe it would have been more of like a wedding feast. You know, and uh, what happened is during this time of betrothal, which is similar to our period of engagement, the, uh, the groom-to-be goes off to prepare a place for his bride-to-be. And the bride is at home with her, with her family preparing for this wedding feast, preparing for this new life. But she's never quite sure of when the time of this wedding will be because the time will be when her bridegroom has actually finished preparing the place. And straight away I try and picture our brides of today sitting, not sure of when their wedding would actually be. I can't quite imagine that going down too well. But here we have a great sense of anticipation. Can you imagine the nervous, pent-up energy of this bride and the bridesmaids as they're busily preparing, knowing that at any time, this moment is going to arrive? And when the time arrives, when the bridegroom has gotten the house, the place ready, and he's ready to uh, begin this wedding feast, alongside his friends, his family, he begins a procession that begins at his father's house, and walks through the streets of the village. There's music playing, there's dance, there's song, there's excitement building as this procession walks through the streets. You know, I picture children possibly being caught up in the fun and the activity and joining the gathering. And what started out with perhaps only a few people has ended up being more like a couple of dozen as they've gone through the streets. And they walk along until they reach the bride's house. And at this point, the bride, I'm sure, heard the noise a fair way off and gets a sense of like, it's time. Along comes her groom. And then the bride's parents, her bridesmaids, they join this procession now that now begins to make its way back through the streets of the village, back to the groom's father's house to begin this wedding feast, this seven-day feast of celebration. So straight away what I see here is a great sense of excitement, of celebration, of, uh, of the village being involved. You know, we live in such an urban context. I think it's hard to imagine that we could hear what's taking place down there at our home. But yeah, I imagine this village rural context, it would have been very hard to miss the day when there was a wedding feast beginning. And this is the context that we see Jesus at work. And the first thing I'd love to flesh out of this passage this morning, and nothing, something I'd love us not to overlook, is that Jesus was invited to the party. The scriptures state that Jesus and his disciples were invited. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when you're putting on a party and you're inviting, you're drawing up the guest list, you don't just ask any old person, do you? The guest list is made up of people that are valuable to you, that are important to you, that you want to come and be a part of this celebration. So I love the fact that straight away my perception of Jesus is blown out of the water a little bit because sometimes I think way too much about him being God and not quite enough about him being human and realise that he is a man with connections, with relationship in his village, being invited into this celebration. You know, when I think about our global impact, when I think about our partnerships, the, the relationships that we're forming, I love the thought of that being built on a foundation of mutual respect, of value, of invitation. Straight away what that says is that actually I value you, you value me. We've both got something to contribute to this relationship. And that's what I see Jesus doing, you know. The picture we paint here in the gospel is not of Jesus just rocking up at a party because he knew he had something to bring. He knew he could save the party. He knew he could turn water into wine. You don't get this picture of Jesus coming with an agenda. The picture that's painted is of Jesus at a wedding feast, enjoying, understanding the importance of the occasion. And during the midst of that, this miracle occurs. And I love that foundation, foundation of honour and respect and trust and a foundation that values people, that values the journey they're on and values the important things. And I would love us as we begin to form global impact, begin to think about developing countries, communities that we might be involved in, that it's built on a space of respect. It's built on an understanding of cultures different than our own. It's built on an ability to listen, to learn, to wonder, not just come with our own agenda not just come saying we've already decided what the problem is, we've already decided how to fix this, but actually there's a mutual conversation that can begin to take place. So I think it's so important that we never forget that Jesus was invited into this party. You know, our Gibb River Road um, up in the Kimberley, we have a, a work that we partner with up there through World Vision and there's actually a team going in just over two weeks to go up there. And this started through an invitation World Vision had been asked by one particular community up north called Nalagunda to come and help them do an assessment of their community, of the strengths of their community, of the weaknesses in their community. And one of the challenges they identified was for their children during school holidays. They're very isolated. They're, um, Nalagunda in particular is, is, is a, probably it's a four or five hour journey, I can't quite recall now, but it's a long time up the Give River Road from the closest town of Derby. So come school holidays, these kids can't just jump on a bus and go see a movie. They can't just go and, you know, fill their time with the things that our kids do. So they identified that the need they have is around school holiday time. And, you know, only recently in the news we hear a story, a tragic story, of a 10-year-old girl in a community not dissimilar to the ones that we go to committing suicide in that community. So straight away what we have here is an identified real need, vulnerable, isolated children. And we've been asked, invited into that space to come and to show that we care, to show that we see and to show that we want to place value. And through this one community of Nalagunda, we've now been invited into two other communities, um, Kupangari and Imaji, uh, along the road of Gib River as well. So there's three communities now that our teams get to go and, and you know, it's not rocket science. But you know one thing World Vision identified is that we put on a kids program every Sunday. Right now, a lot of your children are out there enjoying a, you know, a program that helps them understand how important they are. And they realise as a church, we can offer that to these communities. What a wonderful privilege to be invited into that space, to be able to say, do you know what? We can give of our time, 
The people that go give of their resource, they pay their way. But that as a church, we can partner with these communities. We can help them say, we might be hundreds of kilometres away, and we really are, but that we see you and that you matter to us. There's a sense of mutual respect, and we've got a lot to learn. You know, when I went up there, I've been up there twice now, and uh, the connection our Aboriginal brothers and sisters have to land is inspiring. It's spiritual. And to sit and learn from some of their connections, it really is a, uh, it's a learning space as well. You know, to go and have some wonderful positive interactions is, uh, is really life-changing. And I realised I've actually got a lot more to learn here than I was bringing to the table. But it's a wonderful place to begin with a place of um, invitation. You know, the second thing I'd love us to think about through this passage of Jesus turning water into wine is that Jesus partners with the servants. We have this dialogue of Jesus' mother discovering that they've run out of wine. And so she comes to Jesus and says, you know, how about it? Do you reckon you want to do something here? And I love the fact that, you know, I don't know why she did that, but I think it's just the mother in her perhaps. I can picture me as a mum kind of, you know, you kind of sometimes can be in that space. You're like, yeah, well, come on, do your bit, chip in. And, uh, but he responds and he says this phrase, you know, woman, what's it to you and what's it to me? And, you know, sometimes our modern ears get a little bit kind of, put our head goes a little bit funny. Us women just go like, well, oh, don't really like being called woman. But, you know, back in, the, in, the, in the, the term that's used here is actually the same term that Jesus uses when he's on the cross and he's asking John to look after his mother. It's actually an endearing term. So don't get too stuck if you do on the, uh, the modern hearing of that phrase, but just realise this is Jesus' way of referring to his mother in a very kind of uh, endearing way. But yet he still tells her, what's it to me and you? It's not my time. Leave me be. But as a good mother, she doesn't take no for an answer and she tells the servants to uh, just does what he says. I, I'm, I'm good with that. I respect that. So she tells the servants to, uh, to do what he says. I don't know what she thought he would do. I don't know if she thought he would perform a miracle at this point or what, but she just says, just pay attention, do what he does. See, listen to what he says. So he tells the servants to go and fill these ceremonial jars, these big pots they would have been used for ceremonial washing, fill them with water. And so the servants do. They chose to listen. Jesus clearly had some credibility in their mind that was worth listening to and they filled these jars with water. And then he says to them further, now that they're filled with water, grab those jugs, those pitchers and fill them up. Take them to the master of ceremonies. So the servants at this point are carrying jugs of water. They're not carrying jugs of wine, they're carrying jugs of water. And yet somehow, as they carry these jugs of water to the master of ceremonies, they begin to pour somewhat hesitantly, I imagine. I can't imagine he asked for water. But yet somehow in this process, wine is what flows from these jars. I can only imagine the servants in this moment, as they knew they were carrying water, and the Bible even says that, but the servants knew what took place. That amazes me, that Jesus had the ability to kind of do a bit of grandstanding, just kind of, you know, I picture more of like a wand being waved and the, the water turning into wine, but he doesn't do that. He partners with the servants. They become a part of this miracle. Can you imagine how they felt as they watched that water actually pour as wine? And as I think again of this space of, of us here in the northern suburbs of Perth, being able to have an impact beyond just where we are, I love the thought that Jesus wants to partner with us in that. He wants us to do our part, but that he's telling us he'll turn the water into wine. He'll do what needs to be done if we'll just partner with him. You know, one of the areas I saw this most last year, I got to um, 
go on a trip to Indonesia with Compassion. And Compassion are an organisation that, that, that exists to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. But the way they work over in Indonesia and all the countries, the developing nations that they're part of, is through the local church. So the local church partner with this organisation who have uh, got runs on the board, who clearly know what they're doing. And the local church provide the venue, the volunteers, all the work that gets done, gets done by these volunteers. It's It's a local church just doing what the local church does best, seeing a need in the community and meeting it. And so what I loved here was the partnership that took place. You go to these churches, there's no compassion sign anywhere. There's no big thing that helps you know what's going on. It's just a local church that sometimes I would have driven past in the street if I wasn't in a van that was taking me to this church. And what you see is a church full of volunteers, passionate about the children in their community, passionate to see their children given the opportunities that they wish they'd had. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see as these churches partner with compassion, as the churches partner with the local community. And the local community have no doubt in their mind of where this is coming from. They get that Jesus is helping their children because they want the best for their children too. They don't want their children to go without meals, to go without medical support, to go without giving them the best opportunity. And one of the things I saw time and time again was these volunteers that I met who are now young adults, some of them adults, who had been sponsored themselves as children, who had been a part of the program and who had grown up and and been given opportunity they would never have gotten on their own and want to sow back into that process. Some of them are now leading worship in their local churches. Some of them are now working for Compassion Indonesia in the local place. But I just could not escape the passion they had for this program that they understood this made a difference in my life. And for the community... They were just partnering with the local church who was just partnering with what God wanted to do. So I get excited about that when I think about what we can do as well. Who is it that we can partner with, that we can allow the miracle to take place? Because if we're not going to partner, if the servants hadn't taken that water to the master of ceremonies, it would never have been turned into wine. It could have stopped right there. So the question we ask ourselves is, what is it that God's asking of us? How is it that we can partner in this space? And then the third thing, I'd love to bring out of this passage is the fact that Jesus brings the new wine. At the party, the master of ceremonies is amazed because traditionally you bring out the best wine when everyone's beginning the feast, when they're coherent, when they're able to say thank you for the wonderful wine. But I don't know about you, but a thought of seven days of this feast, you know, it's quite obvious that there's people here that have had too much to drink. And so Jesus is providing more wine for those who have had too much to drink. It almost seems irresponsible. But can I help you understand the fact that in the scriptures, this idea of new wine, choice wine, was a real picture of the age of fulfillment, of of God bringing to pass his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is doing here is he's ushering in this new era He's kind of, you know, uh, the old ceremonial washing, if you like, which is represented by those jars, is, is going to be fulfilled through this work that Christ is beginning, this new wine that is coming. You know, he met the need that was obvious at this party. But I love the fact that he also didn't take that for himself. According to the master of ceremonies, the groom was the one that got the praise. Fancy leaving the best wine till now. This is incredible. No one at that point pointed to Jesus and said, no, 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 this is what happened. But yet Jesus knew that as he brought the new wine, that this, um, the new transformation would be able to take place. 
You know, the focus is on the bridegroom and his ability to provide, not on Jesus. And my heart in this process of connecting with developing communities, connecting with cultures different than our own, is that in doing so, they're able to be benefited from this transaction. That actually it wouldn't be about us feeling good, patting ourselves on the back, doing what we think needs to be done, but that actually we'd be leaving these communities, we'd be leaving people, families, children, better off than before we were there. You know, and if we ask ourselves the question, the beginning of any partnership around the globe is will they be better off having us partner in this place? If the answer is I'm not sure or no, then I think we need to be really hesitant. Because here what we see is a picture is actually the community that we partner with should be left better off from having us. You know, one of the new partnerships we've created is with um, an organisation called IJM, which is International Justice Mission. And they work with uh, the local law and order authorities um, in developing nations to bring about kind of a restoration through the justice system. Um, And it's a biblical idea of justice that um, causes them to passionately serve these communities because they see that if they can come alongside a broken system and actually equip it, empower it to fix and be working right, that actually there's transformation that will take place because they've done research and realised that a lot of people who are enslaved and trafficked throughout the developing world, actually the people doing this trafficking, the people doing this uh, selling, don't just believe they won't get caught. They don't think they'll actually be held to account for what they're doing. And so there's been a lot of research done and um, in uh, Cambodia in particular, IGM have amazing track record of uh, the, uh, the way they've been able to just kind of balance that justice system somewhat. How they've been able to leave the, the local authorities, these are lawyers working, they're able to train local lawyers, they're able to train local police officers who are dealing with victims of, of sexual abuse to help them identify what they're looking for, to help them um, see the signs that they just get so familiar with. They're working with social workers in terms of aftercare, helping these women, men and children come to a place of restoration in health. And I love the fact that the premise that they're coming from is actually that we can be in here, we can fix this broken solution alongside the local community and then ultimately have an exit strategy. The goal is not that we remain here, but that actually we can bring about some balance of of justice in this area. And it's a really exciting space. There's a local field office in Cebu, Philippines, that we were able to partner with. And um, we'll get to hear more of that and see more of what that work looks like um, as time goes by. It's a really challenging work. If you think about, you know, the reality of what a lot of these um, people are coming face to face and, you know, the the change of um, in the trafficking conditions at the moment mean that it used to be that there was pimps and brothels on the streets it's more and more moving into more of an underworld of internet um, child exploitation. And you can imagine the challenge that faces. In a recent interview I saw with the director over in our Philippines, you know, he was saying once upon a time we could do this work and we never had to actually engage in what had taken place because we were able to, we do the research, we do the, the you know, we'd see what had had place and, and know where the rescue was required. Whereas now our lawyers, our team are actually having to watch some of this stuff in order to be able to identify perpetrators, in order to be able to identify what's going on. So it's a very challenging space and um, I look forward to opening that up for us as time goes by. But today what I'd love to leave you with is those three thoughts as we think about how we can shape our impact globally. Firstly, that Jesus was invited to the party, that Jesus partnered with his servants and that Jesus brought the new wine, this new kingdom work that we can be a part of. 
You know, the current areas that we are in partnership with, some I've mentioned to you, you know, up in the Kimberley, we've got those three communities that we're engaged in. In Indonesia, we uh, support a particular uh, child survival program through a church in Malang, which is uh, a bit like a, a MOPS program, really, in the local church. Um, we do that through Compassion. Our young adults have partnered with uh, World Vision in Timor-Leste, and that's a, a new partnership that will develop over the next five years. We've got our connection with IGM, as I shared just, recent, just before, in um, Cebu in the Philippines. And we've got some work in South Sudan that had begun and that we're looking at how we can involve that as well. So these are five areas that we are connected with, that over this year we want to begin to flesh out what does partnership look like in this space? What does relationship look like in this space? What does team look like in this space? And so one of the things I'm going to do is create just a monthly prayer time where those people who are interested, who kind of this wets, wets their appetite for, to kind of be involved more. And uh, on a Friday morning, this coming one is going to be our first one at 7 a.m. We're going to just get together for prayer. It's going to be a time where I can share more focused around what we are doing. Uh, but then we can also just enter a time of prayer together and begin to pray into this space and ask God, what is it that he's asking us to partner? How is it that he's wanting us to be a part of his transforming work in these places? So I encourage you, if that's something you're interested in, keep an eye out for the other uh, church email that will come out because it'll be mentioned in that each month as a way of just connecting and beginning to form some, some team and what our, our, our involvement can look like. So I'm very mindful as we look at this idea of, of, of global impact. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like there's so much to be done, not enough of us, not enough resource, and not enough uh, kind of uh, hands, I suppose. But I want to leave us with an encouragement from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul talks about love. And he reminds us, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so the question we're left with this morning is what will it mean for us here at True North in the northern suburbs of Perth to love people beyond our local context? to love people of different cultures, to love people of different religions, but to love, ultimately. You know, I believe it will begin with mutual respect. I hope it moves forward on the basis of a partnership, and I hope that it brings glory to God as his kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray this morning as we finish.